the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is the time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Today we're going to talk with um, senior teaching pastor from Saddleback Church, Tom Holliday. He's the author of Putting It Together Again When It All uh, When It's All Fallen Apart. I got to get that down before I get him on the air. Putting It Together Again When It's All Fallen Apart. There you have it. Seven principles for rebuilding your life. So looking forward to uh, that conversation. We'll also try to keep you up to date on efforts to avoid the next government shutdown, which Eastern time, midnight is the cutoff date, and there's been a snag in what otherwise seemed like a pretty smooth resolution to the problem. So we'll get into uh, into that. I'm holding in my hands a rather large envelope. It came to me uh, yesterday. I brought it to work with me this morning, hadn't opened it. It's from the Publishers Clearinghouse. And it says on the top, winner search. It has a green star in the middle, $5,000 a week forever. Now, earlier I received a smaller envelope, a yellow envelope saying, yeah, the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes is coming up. And all you need to do is, so you open the envelope and there's like 45 pieces of paper in there. And you have to peel a little ticket from a little sticker from one place and put it on another thing. And you literally have to look at every piece of paper in that envelope in order to figure out where all the little stickers go so that you can send it back in. Because I think, you know, if I can win $5,000 a week for the rest of my life and then pick somebody else, maybe you, Clark, to get the other $5,000 a week for life, why not? Well, why are you doing that if you're already a winner or you're probably yeah, already you, you a winner? You may have already won yeah. is what they So why, what why they bother? Uh, yeah. Well, I did it because, you know, it's a formality. Oh, so I, okay. I sent that in. That's been a couple of weeks ago. Well, then this huge envelope comes. I'm holding it in my hands. Uh, location confirmed, it says. There will definitely be a major $1,000 prize winner in local TV area that includes Portland. It's authorized. It's approved for... An award, and then it gives you a giveaway number. And then in the right hand, the lower right hand side, it says $5,000 a week forever. Now, they're not going to be able, first of all, they're not going to be able to live up to forever, but that's a whole nother, uh, whole nother thing. So I open it up, and apparently the first envelope with all those pieces of paper was insufficient. That only said, ah, yes, I'm interested. Now you have to have a whole nother envelope. It's twice the size of the first one, and it's got 175 separate pieces of paper in it. And literally, you have to go through every single one of them to find the sticker that goes here. And then there's another sticker that goes there. I went through every sheet of paper twice looking for the second sticker that goes in the lower left-hand corner of this thing before I, <laughs> before I filled it out and <laughs> mailed it in <laughs> because I may have already won. I think there are people in a corporate office somewhere. Mm. They're just trying to think up, okay, how can we get these lemmings to just do whatever we want? If they said, okay, pick your right hand and put it up over your head and wave it around, you know, we would do that. And then take with your left hand and put a sticker in the middle of the page. It's the most ridiculous thing. And yet 
There I was. There you are. I went through every single page. And in fact, I'd found the first big sticker. I was rather proud of myself. Had the first big sticker that I may already have won. I mean, I needed that sticker in order to be identified and they'd know where to bring the prize. You know, because they have that van, it comes and they bring flowers and a big uh, fake check that tells you $5,000 a week for life. You know, they needed to know uh, where to find me. And then I looked down and they need three other stickers. I couldn't find that sticker anywhere. I went through every single, all 250 pages. I went through a second time looking for that sticker, which I... Did you ever find it? I did find the sticker and put it on the page and (laughs) I sent it in. Did you? Did you drop it in the mail here at work? I I carried it downstairs and put it in the mailbox because I didn't want there to be any possibility that it would slide down between the desk or fall on the floor and somehow it didn't get to them so that they could get to me. But how stupid does that make me that I went through that whole thing twice? I wonder how many other people even bother. Well, I would just say if you received one of these, don't bother because... I probably But if everybody won. isn't bothering and you're the only one that does bother. Exactly. Exactly. Can I ask a question too? I've wondered yeah. this for a long time. What exactly is the Publishers Clearinghouse? I have no idea, but I think I've kind of caught on because among the 750 pages that are in this envelope, um, each one gives you an opportunity to buy something, a magazine, some kind of a quirky uh. thing. And each one of them has a little, it's like a green stamp, which you probably wouldn't know anything about because you're too young. But it's like a little stamp that you would peel away from that piece of paper and then you would stick it somewhere on that one sheet that you have to send back in order to claim your prize. So it has all kinds of quirky things as seen on TV and, you know, how to clean this and what to do with that. Hmm. And hundreds of subscriptions and they're all supposed to be at some sort of a discount. The the item might cost $15, and they offer uh, – you could pay uh, four payments of two ninety nine or something like You're that. You're right. <laughs> so it's just the whole thing is so utterly ridiculous, and yet – just like a lemming, I okay. So, where where, where to put that sticker? Where am I supposed to do there? <laughs> so what? What, hmm, what happens if you win? For real? Um, maybe aren't I've already? What happens st- if you're not just maybe already a winner, but you in are fact the are the winner? Well, I've already started to pin my farewell address. It'll be a two-hour address that I'll do on the on the air, and just so explain. you'll actually you'll come back in. Uh, I'll, I might I mean, mail we, it. Yeah. <laughs> Once they show up with that fake check and some flowers. Well, I, I, my, I, my guess is I'll have a heart attack. So the first thing, I'll be rushed to the hospital. I'll probably be there for about a week, so I couldn't come right in. And by then, that's why I want to have the, uh, the announcement ahead of time so that I could send it off to you and you could make sure somebody read it um, on the air. <laughs> <laughs> would you like me to do that for you? Would you please? I, I was hoping you would. I okay. didn't know how to ask. Anyway, I may have already won. It's been all that time. You can never get that time back. Um, the Publishers Clearinghouse Suite. Now I know what you've been doing all day. Well, it didn't take me all day. It just took me two, three hours. So. <laughs> 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 all right. Well, 14 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. As I mentioned, Tom Holliday will join us. He's the, the uh, senior Did he win speaking the pastor. He doesn't need to win. He's got a great job at Saddleback. Okay. Uh, anyway, he's the author of Putting It Together Again When It's All Fallen Apart. I said that flawlessly this time.
I got to do that when he's on the air. Anyway, the subtitle, Seven Principles for Rebuilding Your Life. He'll join us later this hour. And then we're going to cover a lot of stuff that's going on. And in fact, just uh, as I was making my way into the studio, there's some new breaking news story about a Russian oligarch and a, a Democratic senator and somehow colluding. to. It's just one big mess. But um, we'll try to provide you with information that's relevant. I'm not going to even comment on that until I at least attempt to understand it myself to see if uh, there's any evidence that it's true and relevant, and then maybe we'll get into that. But it's just breaking news everywhere. Also, as you know, the government shutdown is looming. They only have until midnight Eastern time, and there's been a snag in this whole affair. So we'll try to bring you up to date on that. Fifteen minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the prize winner on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I wish people could see you on the other side of the glass. I'm trying to get my attention. Well, the deal to avoid a government shutdown by midnight has hit a snag in Congress, a bipartisan deal to keep the government funded. Uh, hits uh, that snag tonight as the last-minute maneuver in the Senate by Kentucky Republican Rand Paul to protest spending hikes raised the uh, specter of another shutdown. And again, we're talking about Eastern Time, midnight. Meanwhile, the legislation faces uncertainty in the House as well, where liberals, led by House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, who's trying desperately to remain relevant, are protesting a lack of protections for illegal immigrants brought to the United States as children. And the conservative House Freedom Caucus is lining up against provisions ending spending caps. Well, the Senate yesterday, well, this afternoon, rather, uh, had been scheduled to vote on that budget deal struck by uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Paul's um, uh, uh, fellow Kentucky Republican, and uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. It sends, uh, it spends too much money, borrows too much money, and actually, we're going to, uh, to bring back the Obama-era deficits, Rand Paul said. Uh, of the bill today, um, you're uh, on your real, your world with Neil Cavuto. I was elected to combat Obama era deficits, he went on to say. Well, the spokesman uh, for the uh, libertarian leaning Paul said that the lawmaker is pushing for an amendment to restore the budget caps. That effort could delay a Senate vote until 1 a.m. Friday, past the deadline for keeping the government open. Senator Rand Paul is asking for a one or rather a 15 minute vote on his amendment to restore the budget caps. His spokesman said, he is ready to proceed at any time. Well, um, and so sort of the snag that they're waiting for on the Senate side. Well, the massive budget deal, which includes a stopgap temporary measure to prevent a government shutdown, includes $300 billion for the military. And the agreement also adds $89 billion in overdue disaster aid for Hurricane Slam Texas, Florida, and Puerto Rico, a politically charged increase in the government borrowing cap, and a grab bag of health and tax provisions. But the bill still faces opposition from both Democrats and Republicans. Nancy Pelosi, who on Wednesday spoke for eight hours, eight straight hours on the chamber's floor in opposition to the bill, said that uh, she would oppose it. Democrats like Pelosi are pushing for the bill to include provisions for dreamers, immigrants brought illegally to the country by their parents. And such uh, protections are about to expire in early March, a result of uh, President Trump's ending of the Obama-era Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA program. Illinois Democratic Representative uh, Louis Gutierrez, the leader of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, said he also won't support the bill and predicted 
predicted other Democrats would also vote no. So today uh, they're going to bring over from the Senate a proposal. They are going to lift the caps and they're going to say, let's vote on our budget. Well, I say to everybody, don't collude with this administration. Gutierrez said, vote against the budget. Well, the House Freedom Caucus, the chamber's fiscally conservative wing, also opposes the bill out of concern that it would lead to more government spending. The caucus opposes the deal to raise spending caps in discretionary spending by nearly $300 billion over two years, the roughly 30-member group said today, or rather yesterday. We support funding of our military, but growing the size of government by 13% adds to the swamp instead of draining it. This is not what the American people sent us here to do. Well, today, House Speaker Paul Ryan gave his full support to the bill to try to rally others in chamber to also vote yes, saying the military is at risk without that money. And while acknowledging the deal includes partisan compromises and isn't perfect, this is a bipartisan bill. The Wisconsin Republican said on the net, this is a very good solution. Well, it may be a solution that uh, will not get a hearing if uh, both sides remain intractable. Meanwhile, the uh, longtime head of the public affairs at the FBI, who was a confidant of the former director, James Comey, is planning to retire, we've learned. A notice went out this week for the retirement get-together for, uh, let's see, Michael Corton, scheduled for the 15th, which is next Thursday. Since 2009, Corton has served as assistant director for public affairs, an influential job that controlled media access. He also served under former director Robert Mueller, now leading the Russia probe. The FBI confirmed that uh, Corton is, in fact, retiring. It's unclear whether the retirement was long-planned, or in uh, any way precipitated by recent events. The FBI said he was finishing 33 years of service, which suggests retirement, but it's, again, unclear. After Comey because, uh, became director in September of 2013, Corton helped facilitate regular on-the-record briefings with uh, beat reporters, a departure from previous directors. Corton also was the front and center during the Hillary Clinton email investigation, especially in July of 2016, coordinating me- media coverage and handing out copies of Comey's public statements, recommending against criminal charges in the investigation into mishandling a classified information. Corton Mora recently surfaced in text messages released between FBI officials Peter Stroke and Lisa Page. And while those texts have drawn attention for their anti-Trump sentiments, Corton also seemed to surface in a message warning about the contents of 302s, which were FBI interview summaries from the Clinton email case uh, that weren't given to Congress up front. In September of 2016, text uh, Stroke wrote that there are very few, uh, there are very inflammatory things in the 302s we didn't turn over to Congress that are going to come out in the Freedom of Information Act and absolutely inflames Congress. Uh, I'm sure Jim and Tricia and Dave and Mike and all the uh, all are considering how things like that play out as they uh, talk amongst themselves. Mike would appear to be a reference to Mr. Corton, who is now retiring. Corton is the most recent senior FBI official to retire. Others have been reassigned since Comey was fired by the president in May of 2017. Deputy Director uh, Andrew McCabe was also very close to Comey. He's stopping uh, stepping down rather amid questions about his handling of the Clinton case and Catherine Herridge. Uh, writing on the cases um, uh, suggests that there may be others as well. Well, the U.S. will never rest until it finishes the job of defeating the Islamic State, the brutal terrorist army in Iraq and Syria, the president said today in remarks at the National Prayer Breakfast. He went on to say that for years, ISIS had brutally tortured and murdered Christians, Jews, religious minorities, and countless Muslims. He told the annual gathering of leaders in religion and government at the Hilton Hotel in Washington. Today, the coalition to defeat ISIS has liberated almost 100 percent of the territory just recently held 
by these killers in Iraq and all throughout Syria, the president said of the Islamic army, uh, Islamist army, echoing a passage of his State of the Union address. Much work will always remain, but uh, we will never rest until that job is completely done. Democrats and Republicans, Christians and Jews gathered to pray in hopes to of bridging the partisan divide and building on the progress made last year. The National Prayer Breakfast has been an annual event since 1953 when Dwight Eleanor wrote... Eleanor Roosevelt. Dwight Eisenhower was president. Organizers changed the name from the presidential prayer breakfast in 1970. Guests this year included House Majority Whip Steve Scalise, Senator Chris Coons, uh, Army Major Scott Smiley, the military's first blind active duty officer. He was also at the State of the Union address and Rwanda's First Lady Jeanette uh, Kagame. Uh, Trump uh, reviewed uh, how the founders' religious views shaped the creation of the country and how faith consoles and comforts uh, the nation during times of trouble. Meanwhile, stocks um, posted sharp losses today with the Dow shedding 1,032 points as higher higher interest rates continue to rattle investors, or at least the prospect of them. The Dow Jones Industrial Average uh, tumbled 4.15% to 23,860, notching its second worst point drop in history. The S&P 500 fell 100 points. The NASDAQ composite was 274 points down. The sell-off pushed the Dow and S&P 500 into correction territory when stocks fell at least 10% from their heights. U.S. equities extended their losses in a week overtaken by wild swings in the stock market. The Dow that booked a record-breaking loss of 1,175 points on Monday has shed roughly 2,700 points since Friday with brisk retreat from all-time highs. Positive U.S. economic data such as stronger wage growth, low unemployment has raised Wall Street's odds that Federal Reserve policymakers will raise interest rates faster than anticipated. And of course, there's always concern about about the possibility of inflation. Uh, we're going to take a break here in just a moment, and I want to remind you that when we do, we're going to talk with Tom Holliday. He is a senior teaching pastor from uh, Saddleback Church, and he's the most uh, most recently the author of Putting It Together Again When It's All Fallen Apart, Seven Principles for Rebuilding Your Life. We're also going to remain uh, poised in following what's happening in Washington with regard to the uh, budget deal, uh, which, as I've mentioned, has uh, hit a snag most recently. And the plot seems to be thickening with the grass. Graham letter that's shedding some new light on the Steele dossier and the Nunez uh, memo. Uh, while politicians, pundits, and people continue to react to the spin uh, and the contents of the memo that was released last Friday and wait the uh, release of the Democrats' rebuttal, a new document's been released that contains tidbits uh, of illuminating information. So we'll uh, try to get into that. Uh, as well. We're also going to talk a bit about some of the uh, athletes that you can look for in the winter games that began in earnest, uh, well, just today uh, with the opening ceremonies on Friday. So a lot to talk about and a lot to cover, but we'll be talking with uh, Mr. Holiday in just a few moments about his book, Putting It Together Again When It's All Fallen Apart. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, life can turn on a dime. A failed relationship, a lost job, or a financial crisis can change life in an instant. Well, Saddleback Church's senior teaching pastor, Tom Holliday, he knows firsthand about life's crises. When a catastrophic flood destroyed not only his home, but also his church, as well as many church members' homes, 
problems. He knew he needed help, so he went to the scriptures. He found in Nehemiah the insights he needed to thrive despite his circumstances. And now, in his latest book, Putting It Together Again When It's All Fallen Apart, he walks readers through the difficult first steps that lead to a fresh start God's way, something everyone needs at one time or another. He examines seven principles to help put one's life back together when everything is coming undone. And each chapter of Putting It Together Again When It All when it's all fallen apart coincides with uh, my first steps. It makes the book perfect for individual reading as well as Sunday schools, book clubs, and so on, and includes a small group session tied to a YouTube video study uh, with Holiday for um, uh, each of the seven chapters. Well, my guest is Tom Holiday. Again, he's a senior teaching pastor at Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California. His passion in ministry is to help people discover a love of the Bible and an understanding of God's truth that changes the way they live. He also assists Rick Warren and teaching purpose-driven church conferences to Christian leaders all over the world. In addition to his latest book, Putting It Together Again When It's All Fallen Apart, he's written The Relationship Principles of Jesus, Love-Powered Parenting, and Foundations, 11 Core Truths to Build Your Life On. He also teaches Drive Time Devotions, a daily 10-minute podcast with more than 26 million downloads. He and his wife uh, have three children, six grandchildren, and we're delighted that he's here with us today to talk about his latest book, Putting It Together again when it's all fallen apart. Seven principles for rebuilding your life. Thank you so much for joining us. Jean, thank you for the invitation. Really appreciate the invitation to well, join you. You are so welcome, and I, I am thrilled that you've written the book, but I'm sorry that you had to go through such deep waters, so to speak, in Literally order to, to do that. Waters, yes, yeah. yes. Well, let's talk about what fell apart in your life that led ultimately to this very well, helpful a book. Well, fallen apart over the years, uh, but we first had to start learning things of, about it. It's, it's about 30-plus years ago now, and I've been teaching these principles ever since. It's sort of a life message. You know, I think God gives all of us life messages, and I just feel like we should write them down. Mm-hmm. They may not get published by a publisher, but your family's going to read them. Uh, the rest of maybe uh, the next generations, maybe your great-great-great-grandkids are going to be reading those life messages. And this was one certainly for Shondell and I. So we're in our young 20s, a pastor of a small church up in Northern California, and a levee burst in our town and just destroyed everything, wiped out the mall that was right next to it, swept through the town, and our house was under nine feet of water. Oh, my goodness. Our church was destroyed. Uh, Luckily, or fortunately, uh, the water rose slowly, so no lives were lost, but a lot of of property damage. So I'm having to figure out, Shondell and I are having to figure out how to rebuild, and I'm leading a whole church of people who are trying to figure that out. And I'm I'm in my 20s. You know, what am I going to say to them? Mm. So I turned to Scripture and remembered, okay, Nehemiah had to rebuild a wall. Maybe there's some things in that book that can give us some principles, some learnings for what to do about rebuilding. And it just opened up in a a wonderful way for me back then and uh, was a great encouragement, first to me and then uh, then to the church as I shared it with them. And, And since then, I've learned it's not just if you have a flood that you need to rebuild. A lot of people need to be rebuild relationships. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think that's the number one thing that has to be rebuilt is relationships or maybe rebuild a business or rebuild a ministry or rebuild a life. There's a lot of rebuilding we got to do in this life before we get to heaven. Well, absolutely. And I think one of the more challenging things is to know where to begin. How do you put one foot in front of the other to move in a direction that will lead ultimately to restoration? How do you start that process? Well, I'm First, so glad you asked because that's really that's why I wrote the book is for people that don't know where to begin because I didn't know where to begin. And as I've talked as a pastor, I've been a pastor for over 40 years. 
uh, with people who need to start to rebuild, I, I found that the common feeling people have is, yeah, I know I need to get started on this relationship or this business or whatever it is that needs to be rebuilt. I know I should do it, but I just don't have the energy. And I understand. I mean, they've been working on their relationship. It's fallen apart, and that's just taken all the life, all the hope right out of people sometimes. And so because of that, we just sort of let things slide. And years later, we might look back and think, oh, I wish I'd done something. But at the moment, we just don't have the energy mm -hmm. to do something. So where do you start? And I think maybe that's where Nehemiah's biggest example was to me back then and now. When you read in the book of Nehemiah, he goes and he sees the wall that's in rubble. And the first three, three things the Bible says he does is he mourns and he fasts and he prays. Mourning is expressing your hurt to God. Fasting is focusing your heart on God and praying is asking for help from God. It begins with mourning, with recognizing if you're going to rebuild something, it means something's fallen apart. And that means there's something to mourn. The relationship that didn't turn out like you wanted it to or uh, the house that didn't stay as you wanted it to because it was burned down or it was flooded or the business that didn't grow like you wanted it to. And what all of us want, myself included, is just to hope that it had never happened. So we don't mourn the loss of what caused us to have to rebuild. And because of that, we can't look past that loss. We get stuck in the loss and we never even begin to rebuild. So that's the starting place is the just honest confession to mourn. Now, if I can say a little bit more about that, the Please. problem with that is we're not very good at mourning. Or I can say it for myself at least. I'm American and I'm a man. And those are two reasons I'm terrible at, at mourning. I want to just go back to work until the feeling goes away. And so I've had to learn an awful lot about it. I've still got a lot to learn about mourning, honestly. Uh, and as I, as I look through the Bible to learn some lessons about it, I found a lot of lessons in the Old Testament where you find people mourning for a week, a month, six months, sometimes a year. They took longer than we usually take. And you find the way that people mourn, we have this phrase from the Old Testament, they mourn in sackcloth and ashes. Well, we don't do that. We want to pretend that everything is okay. We're not going to let anybody know we're hurting on the inside. But they let everybody know. I think they got the healthier kind of mourning. So what I learned is mourning we mourn too fast and we want to mourn too pretty. It's going to take mm -hmm. longer. It's going to be a little bit uglier than you want it to be. But guess what? On the other side of that, all of a sudden, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. All of a sudden, Jesus' comfort begins to give you a new strength for living. Now you list in the book, Putting It Together Again When It's All Fallen Apart, seven principles to put it together again when it's, uh, when it's fallen apart. Let's talk about uh, what those principles are. And are they in order of how they should be taken? Or are these, uh, can these be applied in random order? Well, the, the broad order is you got to get started. You got to have the energy to keep going. And then you got to know what to do to make it last once it's been rebuilt. And those seven principles really fall into that broad order. So we talked about getting started. Mm -hmm. you got to be able to, uh, first of all, mourn and fast and pray. But then also, at some point, somebody has to initiate. Somebody, If a relationship is going to get rebuilt, there has to be somebody who says, I believe that maybe this relationship could work. Unless somebody says that, the relationship will just slide into um, non-communication. And eventually, if it's a marriage, a divorce, or if it's with one of your kids, years, you go by years and you haven't talked to each other. So there's this moment when somebody has the courage to stand up and say, I believe something could happen here. And that's, some, that's one of the greatest courageous steps that any of us can take. Because you know the other person might reject you if it's about a relationship. Or you know you might fail if it's about something, a business or a ministry you're trying to rebuild. But you have the courage to say, I'm going to step back into it again. 
it's a lot easier to think something new is going to happen, but sometimes we forget the beauty of what God's already done and what he wants to rebuild. So that that's the getting started part is, is you have to have that person who takes the step, who initiates things. And then once you start to rebuild, and then you got to have the energy to keep going. I mean, we all have rebuilding as a great idea, but how do you have the energy? And there's a lot of different ideas in the book, but one of the most significant ones to me and the place I've found energy many, many times in my life is through the two simple words, thank you. Mm. There, there's something empowering about telling other people along the way that you're grateful for them. We need to express our gratefulness to God, obviously. We also need to express our gratefulness to other people. And one of the reasons we lose energy is we get so focused on ourselves and our task and what we want to get done. We don't tell people around you, around us, thank you for what they are doing for us. And so taking the time to do that, if you're feeling a loss of energy right now, then saying thank you to somebody, giving them a word of encouragement can make a huge difference. Uh, one of the one little uh, tricks I've learned about that in, in my life through difficulties, through times of discouragement, is that when I'm feeling discouraged because no one's telling me thank you, there's probably somebody else out there who, who's feeling the same way. So instead of sitting there feeling sorry for myself, if I'll find somebody and I'll thank them, it all of a sudden turns the whole thing around. And I've taken what was discouraging to me and I've used it to, to encourage somebody else. And that'll multiply in, in very, very powerful ways. Now, we're going to need to take a break, but I want you to continue when we return again. We're talking about the book, Putting It Together Again When It's All Fallen Apart. Tom Holliday is my guest. And the book offers seven principles for rebuilding your life, whether or not we're talking about the physical rebuilding of a structure that has been damaged or relationships, uh, whatever that rebuilding might uh, might mean to you. There are principles in this book to help you along the way, uh, particularly in getting started and having the energy to progress. So we'll continue in just a few moments. You're listening to The George Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. It's about 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. And we're talking with Tom Holliday. He is the author of Putting It Together Again When It's All Fallen Apart Seven Principles for Rebuilding Your Life. He is a senior teaching pastor at. Um, at um, I've just gone blank at uh, Saddleback Church, and we're just delighted to have him with us to talk about his latest book on how to move forward when things have uh, have fallen apart. Now, before the break, we were talking about a couple of the uh, the principles that help us to move forward, to rebuild. Um, let's pick up where we left off. You uh, were speaking about appreciating others. Where do we go from there? Yeah. Well, first, let me say, Georgine, you are so uh, kind to just let me talk. I'm obviously a teacher. I've got something to say about this. <laughs> Interrupt me at any time, please, <laughs> with the clarification. I, uh, I, I think uh, finding that energy to keep on going is extremely important. And part of finding it is realizing you're going to have opposition to any rebuilding project. Anytime you say, I'm going to step forward, and I'm not going to just stay where I am, but I'm going to rebuild uh, – People will try to cut you down. You know, in uh, Australia, they call it the tall poppy syndrome. Anybody who raises their head above others and says, I think maybe God can do something here. People want to sometimes cut you down. Hmm. And when you look at at Nehemiah, the, the first thing that he faced is often the first thing that we face. And it surprises us. First thing that he faced was ridicule. He had these enemies that came in and they just ridiculed them that they could never get that done. And the same thing happens to us. We say, I think I might want to rebuild this relationship. And people ridicule you for it, like that could work. And oftentimes they they couch it in humor, 
You know, we say, I'm going to uh, rebuild my career, and they say, what career? Flipping hamburgers? And they laugh like it's supposed to be funny, but it's not funny. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have a lot of uh, sarcasm in our culture, and that sarcasm sometimes comes out in the negative things people say in those moments. It might be because they're hurt. Usually it's because they're hurt. They tried to rebuild something that didn't happen, or they had hopes for their lives that didn't come about. And so it's very easy to ridicule you. It's easy to throw stones at somebody else. It's very hard to be the one who's out in front who is leading the way to say that something's going to be rebuilt. So don't be surprised if that happens when you start to rebuild a ministry or a relationship or even a home. People will say, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just give up and, and, and walk away? Well, because you had value in that home. And certainly you had value in that relationship or in that, that ministry it's worth doing. So that's one of the keys, I think, is realizing you're going to face some opposition. Yeah, and to expect that, not to be surprised by it, to be prepared for it is a, a great way to continue to move forward. You also yeah. write, write about building on success. As you're, as you're progressing, there will be some success. How do we build on that in a way that— so you, you, come, you come to a place where you know, uh, Nehemiah, eventually, they built the wall. But if you look at the book of Nehemiah, they finished building the wall one-third of the way through the book. So there's two-thirds of Nehemiah left that are about how he kept it built, what he did about it, that it when it was built. Because once they built the wall, nobody was living in the city. So why have a wall with nobody living in the city? Once they built the wall, nobody was tending the gates and the doors in order to make sure that it was safe. So he had a lot to do to secure his investment and make sure things that moved, moved ahead and one one of the keys to uh, to doing that is to realize that the successes that God gives in life, and God's been talking to me a lot about this recently, they're not a pinnacle to stand on. They're a foundation to build on. They're a stewardship, just like everything else in our lives. So you don't take the success and put it up there on the shelf and look at it, and it tarnishes pretty quick up there anyway. You realize if God gave you a success in parenting, it's not so you can feel morally superior to everybody who's struggling as a parent. He did that as some kind of a foundation in life. You've got something to share with somebody else, so you build on that in a way. Uh, And that's a way, some people I know listening right now, they're older and they feel like, you know, I've I've had a lot of successes in life and it's sort of over. No, you know, God God has some ways for you to still build. Even those of you listening right now who feel like, I can't do anything, you can pray. And the things that you learned, you can pray in ways that other people can't pray because you know what to pray for. You know exactly what barriers to pray out of the way. You know exactly what encouragement needs to be placed into that person's life. And God will specifically answer those prayers. I think one of the greatest ways, actually, that we build on successes in life is in the ways that we learn to pray for other people. You write that celebration is an important part of of sustaining the joy of a project completed. Well, yeah. I mean, I think most people, when you say Book of Nehemiah, what's the most familiar book verse in the Book of Nehemiah? Uh, I think if we had one, for most of us, it would be, oh, yeah, somewhere in there, that's that verse, the joy of the Lord is my strength. So that's the celebration part. Mm -hmm. It's not my determination that's my strength. It's the joy of the Lord that's my strength. Uh, when you when you picture somebody who's going to last, who's determined, sometimes it's this picture of a person with a very grim look on their face. But the truth of the matter is, if you can't celebrate it, you're not going to last because the energy that comes uh, for us to last in life comes out of the celebration that we have. The, 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 the crucial core of celebration is worship. All celebration, even if you're celebrating at a baseball game, you're celebrating at a birthday party, the core of any celebration is worship because God is the one who made us. He's the one who enabled us to have joy. He's the one who enabled us to celebrate. So whether we're celebrating at church or at a baseball game or with our kids or family at a, at a party, 
we got to realize that the core of that is worship. So if I'm going to strengthen my celebration, I got to strengthen my worship. And I don't know about you, I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing that. Uh, every time I feel like I've sort of figured out a little bit about worship, I'm reminded about how far I really am from God mm-hmm. because he's so great. But praise God, he, in his humble love, is able to draw us in and draw us in and grow us through that worship. And that kind of joyful celebration in worship is going to it's going to give you strength that you never realize that you have. Yeah, and it shifts our focus away from us. It shifts our focus to him rightly. And you uh, in the final of the seven, you suggest that we need to dedicate it to God. The thing that has been completed needs to be dedicated to him. Well, well we do. And let me just say something about music as we're talking about that because when we talk about celebration and worship, we forget the power of music. And in actually in the first chapter when I talk about mourning, uh, I give a list of 20 or 30 songs uh, to listen through that talk through the comfort of God and the hurt of God. And I know for myself, when I'm going through a time of mourning, I'm just okay until I sit down and listen to some songs. And that's when the tears start to come. There's something about the music that touches my heart in a way that words couldn't, that logic couldn't, that even reading the scripture sometimes can't. And so the, the power of music in, in everything that we're talking about, but particularly in mourning and in celebration, is huge in our lives. And so if you're uh, wondering how to do this a little bit better, then get yourself the right playlist or ask a friend for the right playlist and just watch what, what God does with that. Yeah. And then at the, end, at the end of the story, as you were just asking, there's this, this moment of dedication. And uh, what I say is it's, whatever's dedicated to God is what will last. When we think of dedication, we think of determination, but that's not how the Bible talks about dedication. Dedication in the Bible is not how much determination I have when I'm doing it. It's why I'm doing it. It's who I'm doing it for. So you dedicate it to God. So you've rebuilt a family. You want it to last? You dedicate it to God. You've rebuilt a business. You want it to last? You you dedicate it to God. Rebuilt a ministry. Rebuilt whatever in your life. One of the key points is you dedicate it to God, and then you keep regularly rededicating it to Him. Now, throughout the book, you offer short sample prayers. What role and how important is prayer in this process of rebuilding? Well, obviously, it's vital. I mean, and my mentor in that uh, is Nehemiah. He prays a lot of very strong prayers. And in, in all of his prayers, uh, there's, there's several key themes. One of them is just downright honesty. I mean, if he's mad about what's going on and uh, angry that things aren't working out, he just tells God at the beginning. And I think sometimes the reason we don't feel any power in our prayers is we don't put any power into our prayers. They're so nice, so many of our prayers. You read the prayers of David, read the prayers of Nehemiah, and they're not always nice prayers, but guess what? They work through things in their prayers. Mm-hmm. You look at David, and he'll start at the uh, start of a psalm, and he's mad at everybody, his enemies. By the end, he's saying, God, you're my rock. So in 30 verses, he works it through. Sometimes you and I, in 30 ver- years, we don't work it through because we're not honest with God about it. So he's got this honesty to God, but he's also got an honesty about himself. Uh, he doesn't mind saying, I'm a sinner, and that's why we're struggling right now. And uh, who doesn't struggle with that? Because we all struggle with pride. I like what C.S. Lewis said about that. If anyone wants to be humble, I think the first step is to realize we all struggle with pride. Mm-hmm. I certainly do. And and knowing you struggle with pride in life and being able to say that to God openly opens the, opens the door to a new kind of power you've never experienced before. Now, as we're wrapping up our conversation, what would you say to the listener who perhaps today 
um, found that they uh, something is falling apart in their life and need some encouragement to take that first step or to be energized enough to have a desire to move forward, what encouragement can you offer? I, I'm so glad you had the heart to go back to that person because we've talked about all the principles, but you can't do all those now. So if you're at that place right now, I would say to you, you're not alone. First, obviously, God is with you, but there are others that God will bring alongside of you to walk through this with you. And you don't have to do it all today. You have to do what we talked about at the beginning. Just start by mourning and fasting and praying. By the way, fasting, we always think of food. Fasting, to focus your heart on God, for most of us, is probably a fast from entertainment. Because that's what takes a lot of our time. Mm -hmm. And if we fasted from entertainment, just turned off the radio, maybe. I shouldn't say that on a radio (laughs) show. But just turned off the radio for a week in the car and just let God speak to you there. That focuses your heart in a different way. So you fast and then you pray. You say, God, I'm not going to do this without your help. Just start there and let God start to rebuild your soul, restore your soul. And I would say if you're turning off the radio for the purpose of seeking God, I'm all for it. So so you're on the right right track. (laughs) Hey, thank you so much for the book and for taking time to talk with us today. Thank you very really much appreciate for the invitation. It. Again, uh, Tom Holliday is uh, one of the senior teaching pastors at Saddleback Church. His book is titled Putting It Together Again When It's All Fallen Apart. The book is published by Zondervan. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is producing. Well, we are keeping an eye poised on the back and forth in the Senate and in the House to try to come up with a budget package, uh, which is due by midnight tonight. It looks like a government shutdown is looming. Um, you have factions uh, on the the in the Senate on both the right and the left, as well as in the House, and we'll continue to follow what's happening over the next uh, hour at least. Meanwhile, politicians, pundits, and the people continue to react to the uh, and spin the contents of the Nunez memo. It was released last Friday, uh, and we're waiting for the release of the Democrats' rebuttal. The president, I think, has until Saturday to sign off on that. A new document has been released, however, that contains tidbits of illuminating information on the original GOP memo. Well, according to this new source, on January the 4th, Republican Senators Chuck Grassley, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and Lindsey Graham, chairman of the Judiciary uh, Committee Subcommittee on Crime and Terrorism, submitted a letter to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein and FBI Director Chris Wray requesting that they consider investigating Christopher Steele for lying to the FBI, which is a federal crime. Well, Steele, of course, is the former British spy who was hired and paid uh, by... uh, Uh, Fusion GPS, a research company working on behalf of the Clinton campaign and the DNC to do opposition research on Donald Trump. Steele's also the individual who produced the dossier that was at least assembled it. I'm not sure what the uh, sources are on that, but it was used to support the application for a warrant to engage in electronic surveillance of Carter Page, a suspected foreign agent, wittingly or unwittingly, of the Russian government, who was also working as an unpaid foreign policy advisor for the Trump campaign. I hope you can follow all of that. And it steals credibility as well as allegations of political bias at senior levels of the FBI that are the center of this dispute. Well, um, there's a memo that informs our understanding of the Nunez memo that Grassley and Graham have recently made public. Um, uh, Attached to that referral letter was an eight-page classified memorandum setting forth the basis for the referral. 
And uh, Ray, very much um, to his credit, has declassified much of that letter, but not all of the information in that memorandum which has now been released. Well, the initial application, which is subsequently renewed three times, was filed in October of 2016, pursuant to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA court, and was signed by a judge on a secretive foreign intelligence surveillance court. Uh, As uh, was uh, reported before, former FBI Director James Comey testified that the information in the Steele dossier was unverified at the time of the initial FISA application. And according to the memo, the GOP memo, former Former Deputy Director Andrew McCabe testified before the House Intelligence Committee that no surveillance warrant would have been sought from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court without the Steele dossier information, suggesting the FBI didn't believe probable cause existed based on the information it gathered on its own. Well, several Democrats have charged that the the memo, uh, the Nunez memo, mischaracterized McCabe's testimony, and they've implied that there was more than enough information in the FISA application to support issuing that warrant. In their referral um, memorandum, Grassley and Graham, who've reviewed all of the FISA uh, applications, all four of them in their entirety, um, in that uh, in that referral, um, they make the point that the, the information in the FISA application to support issuing that warrant without the uh, information from the Steele uh, dossier simply was not there. Um, as well as the uh, numerous other FBI documents relating to Steele, uh, they made statements uh, which, uh, assuming uh, they're true, tend to support what it cont- is contained in the Nunez GOP memo. Specifically, the Grassley-Graham memo states that the Steele dossier formed a significant portion of the FBI's warrant application, that the application relied more heavily on Steele's credibility than any uh, independent verification or cooperation for his claims, and that the basis for the warrants rests largely on Steele's credibility. Now, this confirms what the uh, gra- the uh, Nunez memo suggests. Now, the Steele dossier contained explosive allegations that the Russian government, acting under orders from Russian President Putin, was carrying out an operation to tilt the election in Donald Trump's favor, and that the Russian government had compromised, uh, compromising information on an, a financial and, uh, and other salacious nature against the candidate, uh, now president, that could be used to blackmail him at some point in the future. So the question is, why did the FBI trust Steele? It's that they had used him and worked with him before. It seems they trusted Steele. They relied on his information because of his background as a spy and because he provided the Bureau with reliable information on several occasions in the past. And according to this new Grassley-Graham memo, the FBI stated in its initial Faisal application that based on Steele's previous reporting history with the FBI, whereby Steele provided reliable information to the FBI, the FBI believes Steele's uh, reporting to be credible. And while that may uh, have been uh, so in the past, there were plenty of reasons to distrust Steele in this case. So this this Grassley-Graham letter shedding light on the Nunez memo is very interesting, but in the absence of the uh, Democrats' memo that is supposed to clarify or challenge some aspects of the original... GOP memo. It's very difficult to know, uh, for example, what to, what to believe and not believe about uh, what the FBI based its decisions on. Meanwhile, Victor Davis Hanson had an interesting piece um, in uh, the Patriot Post that I thought was uh, put into perspective what we're currently looking at, whichever way it ends up falling. He writes that the Watergate scandal of 1972-74 was uncovered largely because of outraged Democratic politicians and bulldog media. They both claimed that they had saved American democracy from the Nixon administration 
administration's attempt to warp the CIA and the FBI to cover up an otherwise minor, though illegal, political break-in. In the Iran-Contra affair of 1985 and 87, the media and the liberal activists uncovered wrongdoing by some rogue members of the Reagan government. They warned of government overreach and of using the deep state to subvert the law for political purpose. We are now in the midst of a third great modern scandal. Members of the Obama administration's Department of Justice sought court approval for the surveillance of Carter Page, allegedly for colluding with Russian interests and extended the surveillance three times. But none of these government officials told the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Committee, or court rather, that the warrant requests were based on an unverified dossier that had originated as a hit piece funded in part by the Clinton campaign and the DNC in the 2016 campaign. Nor did these officials reveal that the author of the dossier had already been dropped as a reliable source by the FBI for leaking to the press. Nor did officials add that a Department of Justice official, Bruce Orr, had met privately with Steele or that Orr's wife, Nellie, had been hired to work on the dossier. Unfortunately, such disclosures may be only the beginning of the FISA gate scandal, as they're now calling it. Members of the Obama administration's national security team also may have uh, requested the names of American citizens connected with the Trump campaign who had been swept up in other FISA surveillance. Those officials may have then improperly unmasked the names and leaked them to the uh, compliant press again for apparent political purposes during a campaign. As a result of various controversies, the deputy director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, has resigned. Two FBI officials who had been working on special counsel Robert Mueller's team and the so-called Russia collusion probe, Lisa Page and Peter Stroke, have been uh, reassigned for having an improper relationship and for displaying an overt political bias in text messages to each other. The new FBI director, Christopher Wray, has also resigned. The FBI's top lawyer, James Baker, who or rather reassigned, who purportedly leaked the Steele dossier to a sympathetic journalist. How does FISAgate compare to Watergate and Irangate or Iran-Contra? Once again, an administration is being accused of politicizing government agencies to further agendas, this time apparently to gain an advantage for a candidate in the run-up to an election. There's also the same sort of government resistance to releasing documents under the pretext of national security. There's a similar pattern of slandering congressional investigators and whistleblowers as disloyal and even treasonous. There is the rationale that just as in Watergate, the break-in was a two-bit affair, Carter Page was a nobody. But there is one huge and ironic difference. In the current FISA-gate scandal, most of the media and liberal civil libertarians are now opposing the disclosure of public documents. Documents. They're siding with those in the government who uh, disingenuously sought surveillance to facilitate the efforts of a political campaign. This time around, the press is not after a hatred, uh, hated Nixon administration. Civil libertarians are not demanding accountability from a conservative Reagan team. Instead, the roles are reversed. Barack Obama was a progressive constitutional lawyer who expressed distrust of the secretive deep state, yet his administration weaponized the IRS, surveilled Associated Press communications and Fox News journalists for reporting unfavorable news based on supposed leaks. Obama did not fit the past stereotype of right-wing authoritarian uh, subverting the Department of Justice and its agencies, and the roles are reversed. Apparently, weaponizing government agencies to stop a detested Donald Trump by any means necessary is not really considered a crime. An interesting perspective. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 22 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, apparently Senator Rand Paul is still holding up the Senate vote on budget package as the shutdown looms on the House side. And there's 
other uh, mischief on the Senate side. So far, no budget deal passed in either chamber. Well, an FBI informant involved in the controversial Uranium One deal has told Congressional Committee, or a committee, that Moscow paid millions to a U.S. lobbying firm in a bid to influence then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton by helping former President Bill Clinton's charities during the Obama administration. Well, the Hill first reported last uh, Wednesday that informant Douglas Campbell gave a 10-page statement to the the, uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, House Intelligence Committee, and House Oversight and Government Reform Committee, and was interviewed for several hours behind closed doors by committee staff. In the statement obtained uh, recently, uh, Mr. Campbell said Russian executives told him that Moscow was hiring, hiring rather, APCO worldwide in an effort to influence the Obama administration and Hillary Clinton. Um, the the uh, Campbell said uh, Russian nuclear officials told me at various times that they expected APCO to apply a portion of the three million dollar annual lobbying fee it was receiving from the Russians to provide in-kind support for Clinton's global initiative. The contract called for four payments of seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars over 12 months. Campbell said in the statement APCO was expected to give assistance free of charge to the Clinton global initiative as part of their effort to create a favorable environment to ensure the Obama administration made affirmative decisions on everything from Uranium One to the U.S.-Russia Civilian Nuclear nuclear Cooperation Agreement. In the statement, he says that APCO called Campbell's assertion false and unfounded. Well, APCO Worldwide undertook client work on behalf of 10X in 2010 and 2011. It undertook work for the Clinton Global Initiative from 2018. 08 to 2016, APCO says. Uh, these projects were totally separate and unconnected in any way. All APCO actions on these two unconnected activities were publicly documented from the outset, legally proper and entirely ethical. Any assertion otherwise is false and unfounded. So that's the other version of the story. Well, Uranium One is a Canadian mining company. Those sales to a Russian firm was um, approved in 2010. The U.S. government was involved because the sale gave the Russians control a part of the U.S. uranium supply, and the transaction was faced, uh, or rather had faced, uh, renewed scrutiny after The Hill reported last year that the FBI had evidence as early as 2009 that Russian operatives used bribes, kickbacks, and other dirty tricks or tactics to expand Moscow's atomic energy footprint in the United States related to a subsidiary of the same Russian firm. Now, what will happen with this so-called uh, informant and the information provided to the three congressional committees moving forward and whether or not this is a part of an ongoing investigation uh, remains uh, to be seen. But the Russians were so confident, uh, we're told, uh, that they told Mr. Campbell with the Clinton's help, it was a shoe in to get the uh, uh, Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States approval. Um, there were uh, they were so confident in that that they even uh, had him open up the new office because they were planning uh, on the kind of business they were going to do as soon as uh, the uh, contract was approved. So that's another ongoing I- investigation into uh, the uranium one, which apparently is no longer uh, over. Meanwhile, Senator Mark Warner, the top Democrat on the Intelligence Committee, who's been leading a congressional investigation into the president's alleged ties to Russia, apparently had extensive contact last year with a lobbyist for a Russian oligarch who was offering Warner access to former British spy and dossier author Christopher Steele, according to text messages that were recently obtained. We have so much to discuss. You need to be careful, but we can help our country. 
Warner texted the lobbyist Adam Waldman on March 22nd of last year. I'm in, Waldman said. His firm has ties to the Clintons, texted back to Warner. Well, Steele famously put the dossier together that you already know about. Well, uh, secrecy seemed very important to Warner as the conversation with Waldman. It heated up on the 29th of March when the lobbyist revealed that Steele wanted a bipartisan letter from Warner and the committee's chairman, North Carolina Republican Senator Richard Burr, inviting him to talk to the Senate Intelligence Panel. Well, throughout the text exchanges, Warner seemed particularly intent on connecting directly with Steele without anyone else on the Senate Intelligence Committee being in the uh, in the loop, at least initially. In one text to the lobbyist, Warner wrote that he would rather not have a paper trail of his messages. An aide to Warner confirmed that the text messages are authentic. The messages which are obtained from a Republican source um, are all marked confidential and are not classified. They were turned over to the Senate panel by uh, Waldman last September. He didn't return uh, calls seeking comment from national news sources. He runs the Endeavor Group in Washington. He's the best known, uh, Walden, Waldman rather, is best known for signing the $40,000 monthly retainer in 2009 and in 2010 to a lobby uh, the U.S. government on behalf of the controversial Russian billionaire Oleg, uh, whose last name I won't attempt to pronounce. He had his visa revoked by the State Department in t- 2006 because of um, charges which uh, he has denied uh, that he had links to organized crime. So, uh, so many tentacles in this ongoing investigation, in some cases that are linked and not linked. But again, this uh, breaking news just this evening in a developing story. And if uh, more clarifying information is made available, we'll certainly try to provide that uh, for you next week. Also, national security officials are uh, reportedly considering federal funding and construction of a faster, higher capacity nationwide wireless network to counter a similar effort by the Chinese government. But expanding government interference in telecommunications wouldn't advance national security or technological innovation. According to Axios.com, a memo and PowerPoint presentation crafted by an unnamed senior official of the National Security Council, they're urging the Trump administration to take extraordinary efforts to counter the growing economic and political threat from China's aggressive efforts to develop 5G. Well, the term 5G refers to the fifth-generation wireless broadband technology, and the service would expand wireless network capacity, increase transmission speeds, both of which could facilitate uh, emerging technologies like autonomous vehicles and growing demand for video services and so on. Well, the National Security Council memo reportedly asserts that China has achieved a dominant position in manufacture and operation of network infrastructure, and China is the dominant malicious actor in the information domain. Therefore, the memo states, the United States must build a nationwide 5G network within three years to counteract economic and cybersecurity threats from China. The best way to do this, the memo goes on, uh, reportedly argues, is for the government to build a network. It would then rent access to carriers like AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile. There's no national security risk from 5G network in China. The real threat is the United in the United States or to the United States is the federal government's failure to secure American telecommunications network. And verifying whether or not the administration is moving forward on this or is considering um, doing so has many in the uh, tech industry concerned about what the future may hold. We'll continue to follow that story as well. Well, an Indiana federal district court has granted Child Evangelism Fellowship a permanent injunction 
against an unconstitutional policy that the school district of Pike Township used to discriminate against Good News Clubs. We talked about it some months back. It's now resolved. Liberty Council represented a child evangelism fellowship nationwide. One of the ministries uh, of is the after school Good News Clubs for children. Well, in violation of the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the district previously required the uh, Good News Clubs to pay facilities user fees for Good News Club meetings while waiving the fee for similarly situated non-religious groups. Well, for nearly two school years, the district ignored Child Evangelism Fellowship's numerous attempts to resolve the constitutional violation. Well, this deprived Pike Township elementary students of the Good News Club's uh, programs, which... um, They offer to all interested students free of charge and with their parents' consent. Well, Liberty Council filed a federal lawsuit on behalf of the organization, and the court previously granted a preliminary injunction concluding that the district's policy was likely to be found unconstitutional and requiring the district to immediately waive facility fees fees rather, in the same manner as for other non-religious clubs. Well, after litigation, the case has now been fully resolved in favor of the uh, Christian organization. The court has entered an agreed permanent injunction and judgment, which permanently prohibits the district from charging uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship any facility fees in the future. They also order the district to pay back uh, to Child Evangelism Fellowship all of the discriminatory facility fees that were unconstitutionally charged and to pay Liberty Council the sum of $85,000 as uh, and for reasonable attorney's fees and costs. So uh, that case now uh, resolved rather for Childhood Evangelism Fellowship. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 37 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a second government shutdown is in less than a month, appears increasingly likely this evening as the last-minute maneuver by Senator Rand Paul uh, delayed consideration of the bipartisan budget package to keep the government open past midnight. He is objecting to a quick vote on the deal struck by his fellow Kentucky Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. And he says he was asking for a recorded vote on reversing the bill's spending increases. That hasn't uh, happened thus far. They have until midnight, in both the House and the Senate, to pass something to prevent the government from uh, from closing. That's nine o'clock our time. We'll continue to see if uh, there's progress. Well, Oregon is one of four states taking part in a program that would study the feasibility of abortion by mail in Oregon, Washington, um, New York, and Hawaii. That's Washington State, by the way. And um, by having women induce their own abortions at home following a short video conference with an abortion provider. The program is overseen by. Um, uh, Guy Nutty Health Projects, an abortion provider whose president, Beverly Winnikoff, was instrumental in bringing RU486, the abortion pill, to the U.S. Now, the dangerous abortion drug, RU486, a combination of two drugs, was approved by the FDA for use in the United States in September of 2000 to be used under the supervision of a physician in three separate office visits. Promoters of abortion chafed at the FDA's conditions or limits to its use and persuaded the Obama FDA to relax those protocols. So in April of 2011, um, in a report, the FDA uh, found that 14 women in the U.S. had died using the drug, along with dozens worldwide. The study found that 2,207 women were injured by the drug. A Planned Parenthood study admitted that at least one woman is seriously injured from the, uh, the abortion drug every day. A recent trend is to sell abortion drugs 
attacks over the Internet. Researchers in four states, Texas, Washington State, California, and New York, searched for abortion pills on the Internet, ordering 22 products from 18 different websites. Websites, rather, in what uh, in that study and others, there were multiple problems, including no requirement for a prescription, proof of uh, pregnancy, gestational age of the baby, or confirmation that the pregnancy was not an um, uh, intrauterine pregnancy. Abortion pills were uh, shipped without any instruction on usage, even though the pills were supposed to be taken in certain amounts and in certain order. Other concerns with mail order abortion drugs included knockoff drugs from foreign pharmaceutical makers and in. Uh, involved uh, degraded drugs, pills that contained incorrect dosages, drugs that took more than two weeks to be delivered, uh, the drugs that arrived damaged or failed to arrive at all. Well, in early early, uh, this year, California legislators debated a bill that would force public universities to offer taxpayer-funded abortion drugs to students on campuses. Senator um, Connie Leva's bill... Uh, would require public universities and community college health centers to provide abortion drugs up to 10 weeks of pregnancy. California's Family Council CEO warned that these pills will hurt our daughters and end the lives of our grandchildren by forcefully inducing a miscarriage up to 10 weeks of pregnancy with hemorrhaging, delivery of the baby into the dorm room, and so on. Well, in international news, uh, Canada's government, within months after dangerous abortion drugs went on the market there, is already expanding their use. The drugs may now be used up to nine weeks of pregnancy instead of seven. And being precise about that is always uh, can certainly be a challenge. The new regulations no longer require women to take the drugs under the supervision of a doctor. And uh, earlier this month, British Columbia, Canada, will join New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Alberta, Quebec, Ontario in providing the deadly abortion drug for free through the taxpayer-funded health system. This is the direction that they have gone, and uh, Oregon is currently a part of a test program that would allow mail-order at-home chemical abortion as well, initially with the supervision of a physician by phone or video, who knows. Um, But... uh, This is what's happening right here in the state of Oregon. Within a week of taking office in January of 2017, President Trump reinstated and expanded the Mexico City policy. It was called, it's now called, I should say, Protecting Life and Global Health Assistance that bans U.S. funding of abortions overseas. This expanded policy prohibits $9 billion in U.S. taxpayer money from funding foreign organizations that perform or actively promote abortion as a method of family planning. And we've gone back and forth in this country with similar policies. The pro-life policy applies uh, global health assistance funding for international health programs like HIV AIDS, maternal and child health, malaria, global health security, family planning and reproductive health, but not abortion. Uh, The government grants uh, to 733 organizations were up for renewal, and the organizations had to demonstrate compliance with the Mexico City policy in order to obtain funding. The State Department issued a new report yesterday, and they revealed that 729 out of 733 organizations accepted the Trump administration's requirement that they not commit or perform abortion as a condition of receiving that money. Two organizations refused to cease promoting abortion and will not 
not receive said funding. Now, these include International Planned Parenthood Federation, no surprise there, and Marie Stopes International. The names of the two others are not yet public. Well, the policy was originally announced by President Reagan way back in 1984 and required non-governmental organizations to agree, to agree rather that they would neither perform nor actively promote abortion as a method of family planning in other nations before receiving any federal funding. In 2009, President Obama overturned that policy that provided a portion of over $400 million in federal funds to the abortion organizations like International Planned Parenthood and Marie Stopes International for their foreign efforts. Well, uh, International Planned Parenthood reports that its affiliates ended the lives of nearly one million unborn children in 2015 alone and claims to have provided 16.8 million abortion-related services over the past five years. At least now, U.S. tax dollars are not uh, underwriting those abortions. Under the Trump administration, we're making a significant uh, headway in the, the battle to make the womb a safe place again. Uh, Matt Staver, who's the founder and chairman of Liberty Council, points out former President Obama refused to honor the Mexico City policy and ushered in eight years uh, in which a radical support for Planned Parenthood domestically and abroad funded abortions here and there as well. And finally, um, there's a new Gerger, uh, Gerber baby in town, and he's a little Down syndrome boy. This one-year-old is the first Down syndrome child to be granted such an honor. It's an excellent, very visible, enthusiastic support for human exceptionalism and equal moral worth. This year's Gerber baby has Down syndrome. Uh, in 2018, Gerber baby Lucas Warren, a one-year-old from Dalton, Georgia, who was the first child to be uh, named a-, a Gerber baby since the contest started in 2010 with Down syndrome. He's very outgoing, never meets a stranger, Lucas' mom says. He loves to play, loves to laugh, loves to make other people laugh as well. But don't tell Iceland. You might recall we talked about it some time ago that that country has wiped babies with Down syndrome off their territory through a program of eugenic abortion targeting fetuses with that condition or at least suspected of having the condition. They're not always able to tell. Uh, Don't tell France. That country refused to permit a Down syndrome support organization run a TV ad extolling the joys of raising Down syndrome children because it could make women who aborted down fetuses feel guilty. And don't tell Peter Singer of Princeton. He's advocated the uh, proprietary uh, infanticide of Down syndrome infants, uh, post-birth abortion, he calls it. Do applaud Gerber for making an all-too-rare, very positive statement about the inherent value of people with Down syndrome. Kudos to Gerber. 45 minutes after 5 o'clock, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. This is the last segment of today's program. Well, the Winter Olympic Games have officially begun, although the opening ceremonies are hours away. Uh, as I mentioned yesterday, they had to run some events early in order to fit them all in to the limited amount of time that they uh, designate for the Olympic Games. But the Winter Olympic sports take, as we know, strength and grace and speed and precision, incredible courage on the part of these athletes, especially during the Winter Olympics when some of these athletes are moving at a rate of speed that's terrifying. Well, for many of these, Uh, athletes uh, that we're about to see in Pyeongchang, South Korea. Those qualities are bolstered by their faith. 
and it's seen uh, it's seen them through their darkest hours, their hardest struggles, and a few of those athletes who have shared uh, their faith in their Olympic journeys. Uh, I wanted to mention uh, some uh, some of these athletes to watch out for in Pyongyang. The first is Mamie Binet. She's a speed skater. Uh, she's skating for the United States. Just before her 18th birthday, she became the first African-American woman to qualify for the U.S. Olympic speed skating team. She won accolades from one of her heroes, Apollo Ono. You might remember him. For the um, uh, bubbly teenager, it's been a, a pretty long road from her native Ghana uh, when she left at the age of five to live with her father here in the United States. Well, she and her father both thank God for her phenomenal success. Her father believes it was God who first drew his attention to a sign advertising skating lessons that inspired him to ask her if she wanted to try. And even though he sometimes regretted it, when his little girl woke him up early on Saturday mornings to go to the rink, uh, he now recognizes this was providential. As Mamie herself uh, posted on an Instagram after her win at the Olympic trials, if God hadn't given my dad the strength to wake up and take me to practices, I wouldn't be here today. In her emotional post, she also thanked her church family, their prayers for safe travels and successful competition. Also, Alexa Skimeka Kinnearman and her husband, Chris Kinnearman, or Something very close to that. They are a figure skating pair. Uh, they're a couple on and off the ice. They were married in 2016, and the pair won the United States' uh, only pair spot on this year's Olympics team. Uh, but their victory wasn't always a foregone conclusion. Not long after their wedding, Alexa underwent three surgeries for a life-threatening abdominal illness. And the photos she posted online on her Facebook page, uh, her recovery process, including her surgical star- scars, rather, drove home just how serious and scary the ordeal had been. Yet the pair was back on the ice not long after her final surgery. At first, she could skate only a few minutes at a time before she needed to sit down, have a nap. Certain pairs moves were harmful to her incision. You can get the idea. But the two made it to the 2017 World Championships and are now headed for their first Olympic Games. I may have lost a lot of faith in myself, she says, but I grew in my faith in God. Uh, I have um, some insecurities now that I didn't have before, but I'm able to work on it and move forward because I've shifted my focus and my attention to my faith instead of myself. This from a successful Olympic athlete. Another um, USA athlete, her name is Katie Uliander. Uh, as she prepared for her fourth Winter Olympics, uh, she's still dealing with the fallout from her third Olympic Games at Sochi in 2014. She barely missed a bronze medal in those games, coming just four hundredths of a second behind a Russian, Ilana Nik- uh, let's see, Niktinka, or something like that. Uh, in the years after that, uh, she found herself on an emotional roller coaster when Russia's doping program came to light. Uh, her competitor was uh, banned and stripped of her medal by the International Olympic Committee, only to be reinstated when the Court of Arbitration for Sport overturned that ruling. Was she going to get a medal or not? Well, it went back and forth. Along with other Winter Olympians, Zuliander uh, has had to deal not only with the suspense over whether a Sochi medal might come her way after all, but also... Um, the possibility that Olympians uh, who flouted the rules uh, will be in Pyongyang. She had both of those things to try to think about. Leander is relying on her faith in God to see her through. I am a human being. There are a lot of emotions in just seeing something so unjust happen, she says. But to be a good human, to be a good Christian, I have to focus on what I can control and set an example. Then there's Suen 
Adigan. She's a bobsledder from Nigeria, a former Summer Olympian, Suin. She represented Nigeria in track and field during the 2012 Summer Olympic Games, but confessed that she stunk at it, her quote. Hungry for athletic redemption, she then switched to bobsledding, of all things, building her own training sled from scratch. It's called the Mayflower, after her sister, sister May May, who died in 2009. She and her teammates will constitute Africa's first Olympic bobsled team. At the same time she was training for her new sport, uh, she was also earning two degrees, a doctorate in chiropractic and a master's in exercise and health sciences. Asked how she managed it all, she says, I honestly only have one answer, God. The support of family and friends helped, she adds, but prayer was a significant tool in getting through her massive workload. And the fearlessness and selflessness that come with faith are the ultimate key to her success. Then there's David Wise, who's a freestyle skier from the United States. In Sochi four years ago, David was the first man to win gold in the ski halfpipe, which was then a brand new Olympic event. Since then, he was, he rather hasn't uh, been at his best. He's dealt with various injuries, including concussions, but he managed to fight his way back onto the Olympic team this time around. With him in South Korea uh, will be his wife his children, and his sisters, his sources of support through good times and bad. Four years ago, NBC News caught some flack for saying that Wise, with his focus on faith and family instead of partying with his fellow athletes, was living an alternative lifestyle. Hmm. Well, he's still living that lifestyle, and he wouldn't have it any other way. I know that whatever happens to me is not outside the control of a God that faithfully cares for my family and I, he says. The fact that God is in control over my life and my family's lives takes the pressure off. It makes it easier for me to go out there and enjoy the ride. Well, Wise uh, has also had the opportunity to support his family in turn, for example, pledging 10% of his winnings and endorsement earnings to a charity that he and his sisters founded that provides children with prosthetic uh, limbs. His sister, Christy, was an Air Force pilot, lost her leg in a 2015 boating accident. Then there's Kim So-hee, an alpine skier from South Korea. Uh, Kim competed for uh, South Korea in the Sochi Olympics in 2014, but couldn't finish the uh, uh, the slalom event because of an injury. Now she's back to compete in her home country. In an interview before Sochi, Kim said that she prays before every competition. And like her grandmother, minister and skiing tutor, Reverend Jan Jin Sion, uh, who helped uh, raise her, Kim hopes to spread the gospel through sports, possibly as a future member of the IOC. Nicole Hensley is an ice hockey player from the United States. Nicole, she may be known almost as much as uh, for her love of scripture as for her goaltending skills. The 2018 Olympic women's hockey team member tweets out Bible verses and writes them on her face mask. Recently seen on a mask was Psalm 144.1. Praise be to the Lord, my rock, who's, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. Well, Hinsley, uh, one of the featured athletes in a U-Vision, the Winter Olympics and the Bible reading plan, credits God's word not just for inspiring her athleticism, but also for forming her character. I would say that I used to have a bit of a temper on the ice. That's not how I want to portray myself or portray how God has acted in my life, she says. My faith has calmed me down on the ice and helped me realize that, uh, realize too, that the result is not necessarily the most important thing. It's more important to be on the ice and enjoy the chance to play when God has given me such a passion and ability. 
in this game. Then there's Ilana Myers-Taylor and her husband, Nick Taylor, both bobsledders. Uh, while Ilana Myers, you might have seen her on some of the television commercials recently, is going to Pyeongchang as a member of the women's bobsled team, her husband, Nick, will be there to play multi-roles, both as an alternative for the U.S. men's bobsled team and Ilana's trainer and biggest supporter. Their pastor, Ryan Schneider, who married the pair and who leads a Bible study in which they participate, told the FCA magazine that Nick's sacrificial support for his wife, Ilana, prioritizing her training and her needs above his own, is the perfect picture of a husband loving his wife like Christ loved the church. Then there's Kelly Clark, a snowboarder from the U.S. As she uh, heads to her fifth Winter Olympics, Kelly Clark will take with her a board that, uh, with a sticker that reads, Jesus, I cannot hide my love. After her victory at the 2000 Games, uh, Clark turned to Christ for a sense of significance that even her beloved sport couldn't give her. Now she relishes, relishes rather the opportunity to take the gospel to her fellow athletes. I'm in an industry, she says, where faith is very foreign and it's very countercultural. I get to love these people really well, who would never step foot in a church. And then there's Simadel Adiago something from Nigeria. She does the skeleton, which, by the way, I had to look it up. I don't know what the skeleton is. It's a winter sport. It's featured in the games where a competitor rides headfirst and prone. In other words, lying face down on a flat uh, sled. It's normally run on an ice track uh, and and, um, uh, that allows the sled to gain speed by gravity. It was first introduced to the Olympics in 28 and again in 48 and then reintroduced in 2002. Well, she's 36 years old. She's about to become the first African uh, woman, African woman. To compete in skeleton at the Winter Olympics, like uh, her friend, she moved from uh, track and field to winter sports, though uh, she never became a summer Olympian. After 10 years of trying and uh, failing to qualify for the summer Olympics in track and field, she was inspired by watching the Nigerian bobsled team to try a winter sport instead, intrigued by the possibility of making history, which she now has. She only began skeleton last September. She credits her background in track and field for helping her master the sport so quickly, she She's able to go to the Olympics just months later. She also credits God saying faith is most important because faith made this possible. Some of the Olympic athletes to be featured in these winter games. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. 
Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.